Have you all heard about Project 2025? A lot of my friends on the left have been bringing it up to me recently. It's a project of the Heritage Foundation, essentially a presidential transition project, where they're going to attempt to equip the next president, next Republican president, they say as though they don't know who that would be if a Republican were elected, but they just say the next Republican president, with the tools necessary to wrest control of the government from what they call the radical left. And the news coverage of Project 2025 has been fairly scathing. It's referred to it as a Christian nationalist document. It's talked about authoritarian impulses. It wants to, it claims that the project wants to strip the federal government down to the studs, firing thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of federal workers just through an executive order. It talks about the motivations really being an extension of the movement to overturn Roe and to continue to protect, quote-unquote, the sanctity of the unborn child. Basically, there has been no positive coverage of Project 2025 on the left. I would also say, however, that there's been no truly descriptive coverage of Project 2025. The best article I found thus far came from The Week magazine, which attempted to summarize everything that people have been saying about this project all in one place with various links. And I'd recommend it to you if you just need a quick read. But if you follow those links, I think you gain no greater clarity about the specific plans and how they all work together, which is really a shame because... Thanks to the Heritage Foundation, the mandate for leadership, which is what they call Project 2025, is all online. All 30 chapters of it are available to us to read for ourselves. And so I suddenly had the impulse to say, well, maybe our listenership would be interested in knowing what each of these chapters said, or at least in big blocks what it says, because it's broken down into four or five distinctive parts. Uh, And so... That's what I'm going to do. In this episode, at least, I'm going to go over what are the introductory statements of Project 2025. But I'm of the belief that people should read things for themselves. The coverage has been interesting to me. It certainly alarmed me enough that it led me to this place where I wanted to actually read the document. But if you'll take the time with me, I think we can actually make our own assessments of what this document says uh, in critical detail. So that we know exactly what a group like the Heritage Foundation is proposing for our country. So let's dig in. The first essay, if you could call it that, is actually a note on Project 2025. It comes to you from the project director, a man named Paul Dans. Might be Danes, but I'll call him Paul Dans. It starts off and it says, we want you. The 2025 Presidential Transition Project is the conservative movement's unified effort to be ready for the next conservative administration to govern at 12 noon, January 20th, 2025. Welcome to the mission. By opening this book, you are now a part of it. (laughs) So I guess we're in. All right, we got the keys. All right, let's see. What's this about? It says for conservatives to have a fighting chance to take on the administrative state and reform our federal government, we must start now. The long march of cultural Marxism through our institutions has come to pass. The federal government is a behemoth weaponized against American citizens and conservative values with freedom and liberty under siege as never before. 
I don't know about you, but this all feels a little overstated. In any case, it goes on to say this book is functionally an invitation for you, the reader, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith and Ms. Smith. To come to Washington or support those who can, our goal is to assemble an army of aligned, vetted, trained, and prepared conservatives to go to work on day one to deconstruct the administrative state. So that's the project. Everybody got that? On day one to deconstruct the administrative state, which apparently has been taken over by cultural Marxism, and this is the greatest threat to freedom and liberty Uh, In our lifetimes. No, not in our lifetimes. As never before, never before in our history have we seen such a great threat to liberty and freedom since the the long march of cultural Marxism. All right. If you're me or anything, anyone like me, you're already very skeptical of this document because none of this seems to comport with reality. But let's go to the second essay because that's written by Kevin D. Roberts, who is president of the Heritage Foundation. And I first learned about Kevin D. Roberts just maybe a month ago or so because there was a great New York Times magazine piece called Inside Heritage Foundation's Plans for Institutionalizing Trumpism. And since I want to keep Trump as far from the White House as possible, (laughs) the idea that you would institutionalize even his legacy seemed problematic to me. So I had to read this. And there are many concerning parts of that essay. I recommend it to you. It's an interview, I should say. Uh, There are many concerning parts of that interview. I recommend it to you. The most important of which to me was that Kevin D. Roberts really seemed obsessed about, quote, the focus on family policy. And he says the motivation to realize that Hungary has to do something, as most countries in the world outside of Africa have to do, to reverse the declining birth rate is a fundamental concern of the conservative movement. I just don't understand how that could possibly square with any notion of limited government. I do not want the United States government to be concerned with the national birth rate. That is really Handmaid's Tale type of stuff. In fact, it was reminding me I was visiting France, Paris for my honeymoon and we got to visit Versailles. I've always wanted to go see Versailles. And, you know, when you go through the apartments of Louis the 14th. There's one that's the royal bedchamber and apparently some people who are better historians than I will help me to understand this, but apparently they watched the marital act. Like the crown figures would stand around while the king and queen did their thing to make sure it happened. That's what became immediately resonant to me when I heard that they were concerned about the birth rate. The declining birth rate. What business is it of governments if I choose not to have children? I get how could we have a country if people choose not to have children. Trust me, people will always have children. (laughs) I know that there's a lot of contraception. I know that there are abortions that the conservative movement doesn't want to happen. But people will continue to have children and lots of them. So declining birth rate or not, there will be a United States of America with sovereign borders with people inside of it. So anyway, Kevin D. Roberts was already a person that I wanted to pay close attention to because I don't want him in my bedroom. Now, I'm gay, so he may not especially want to be in my bedroom or not want me to have one at all. But the point is, that was a concerning statement. So he writes 
what is the forward to the 2025 project. It's called A Promise to America. Here's how it goes. Today, America and the conservative movement are enduring an era of division and danger akin to the late 1970s. Now, as then, our political class has been discredited by wholesale dishonesty and corruption. Now, I happen to agree with the dishonesty and corruption part, but I don't think that we're labeling the same people as dishonest and corrupt. For me, those people include George Santos and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I'm not sure who they include for Kevin D. Roberts, but let's continue because there's more here. He claims that because of those cultural elites, whoever these nameless figures are, we have more inflation, drug overdose deaths, and children are suffering the toxic normalization of transgenderism with drag queens and pornography invading their school libraries. I'll be honest and say I haven't been to a whole bunch of schools as of late, but there are a lot in my neighborhood. And I have not seen a single drag queen. I live in Washington, (laughs) D.C. I've not seen a single drag queen. And I'm almost certain there's no pornography in those school libraries. So we must have a very expansive notion of what pornography entails. Is it any reference to genitalia at all? At all? Any reference to sex acts that take place between human beings? I thought the birth rate was a big concern. Anyway, how are they going to learn? Anyway, <laughs> none of those things seem to track reality for me. And one of the notable pieces about this introductory forward, I have to say, from Kevin D. Roberts, Ph.D., is there are very few references which is always a concern to me in an academic document, because one of the, the reason we're reading this together is so that we have our own assessment of whether or not what's being said in the media is accurate. But in order to gain a true assessment of the value of each proposition, a reference would be helpful. So he takes for granted that we believe that inflation is ravaging family budgets, that drug overdose deaths continue to escalate. That at least is factually true, it seems to me, on its face but the children are suffering the toxic normalization of transgenderism with drag queens and pornography invading their school libraries. As I said at the outset, it all feels over the top for me and a little unhinged. But it is, as he says, the product of more than 400 scholars and policy experts from across the conservative movement and around the country. And it is aimed at helping the next Republican president enact a enact. It is, excuse me, let's do it again. And it is aimed at helping the next Republican president enact an agenda for the country. So as we continue, he says there are four different pieces to it. We need to restore the family as a centerpiece of American life and protect our children. We need to dismantle the administrative state and return self-governance to the American people. We need to defend our national sovereignty, borders, and bounty against global threats. And we need to secure our God-given individual rights to live freely, what our Constitution calls the blessings of liberty. He really goes into these issues around the family, stating that too many children are born to unwed mothers, including 70% of black children, and that fatherlessness is one of the principal sources of American poverty, crime, mental illness, teen suicide, substance abuse, rejection of the church, and high school dropouts. His solutions 
are that we need to eliminate marriage penalties in the federal welfare program. I don't know a single person who's decided whether or not to get married based on the tax bracket. Maybe there are some cultural elites for whom that's true, but not ordinary people. So that was a little odd to me. And then installing work requirements for food stamps. And I just had to go and look. Are people who receive food stamps not working? It turns out that 79% of households on food stamps have at least one worker. Excuse me, that's not even right. It's 83.7% have at least one worker if they're a married couple. And if they're unmarried, all SNAP families, then it's 79%. So overwhelmingly, people on SNAP, which are food stamps, if you don't know, are working. So how is that a policy prescription that's meant to do anything to support the American family? He goes on to say, today's left is threatening the tax-exempt status of churches and charities that reject woke progressivism. They will soon turn to Christian schools and clubs with the same totalitarian intent. Now that is a paragraph on its own. I defy you to find a major progressive organization and maybe even a minor one. I just didn't have time to look for minor ones that is supporting threatening the tax exempt status of churches. Google it. I mean, this is why I'm looking for a site and a reference. I could not find anything. The closest thing I found was an article called what if we tax churches it said there was a hashtag, tax the churches. But that was the extent of the so-called left movement to threaten the tax-exempt status of churches and charities. Further on in this piece, he says pornography should be outlawed. Not just that, but the people who produce and distribute it should be imprisoned. Educators and public librarians who purvey it should be classed as registered sex offenders. And telecommunications and technology firms that facilitate it, facilitate its spread should be shuttered. Whatever your opinions about pornography, it's usually been protected speech. It's a class of commercial activity. It might very well be threatening in all sorts of ways that require government response. But you can already tell where this is headed, given the earlier invocation of pornography, which said that it was in school libraries. If your first response to this is, I don't like pornography, go back to that clause, because the pornography that they're talking about is not the kind of pornography that you and I are normally associating, thinking sort of Hustler magazine or Playboy. It's something just talking about human genitalia and sexual relations. It's a much broader definition of pornography. And with that broad definition of pornography, it seems Kevin D. Roberts is interested in ensuring that the people who produce it and distribute it, which may very well be authors of novels, are imprisoned. That educators and public librarians should be classed as registered sex offenders for sharing any information about human sexuality that is not heterosexual human sexuality, and maybe even that would be classified as pornography depending on if it's out of wedlock or... I mean, it's hard to classify this, hard to make sense of those statements is my point. But again, speaks to actually the exact totalitarian impulses 
that Kevin D. Roberts says he's trying to resist, that the left is trying to impose on Christian values, somehow is captured in this phrase. He goes on to say, allowing parents or physicians to assign, to reassign the sex of a minor child is child abuse and must end. And the pro-family promises expressed in this book are central to the next conservative president's agenda, but they must go much, much further than the traditional narrow definition of family values. Every threat, every threat to the family must be confronted. That includes big tech, which designs platforms to create dependencies that fuel mental illness and anxiety and fray children's bonds with their parents and siblings. And finally, he says the Dobbs decision was just the beginning. In summary, the next president has a moral responsibility to lead the nation in restoring a culture of life in America again. There's a lot more in this first chapter. I really do recommend that you read it. It talks about the administrative state and the pieces I was mentioning about firing tens of thousands of workers, making sure the president exercises constitutional authority over federal policymaking. It goes on again to talk about amorphous corporate and political elites who do not believe in the ideals to which our nation is dedicated And then it has a line that I think really summarizes all of this. It said, when the founders spoke of the pursuit of happiness, what they meant might be understood today as in essence, quote, the pursuit of blessedness. I don't know what blessedness means. I know that Kevin D. Roberts seems to know very clearly what it means and believes that it's the president's responsibility to ensure that the American people are blessed. What does that mean? He says, that is an individual must be free to live as his creator ordained to flourish. Our constitution grants each of us the liberty to do not what we want, but what we ought. That's not the constitution as I know it. The pursuit of happiness is the freedom of conscience to walk your own path, to make decisions about your own life, to come to an understanding of righteousness as you see it, right and wrong as you see it, and to make decisions based on that. Kevin D. Roberts has a much narrower conception of happiness than the founders intended, in my view. That's the start of this document, Project 2025. You're probably just as concerned as I am. And it does seem to me that the media reporting has gotten the accurate angle on exactly what the Heritage Foundation is pursuing for our nation should a Republican president be elected. But the only way we'll really know is if we keep reading. We're about to entertain a topic that I thought we would never have to entertain, but it comes from the state of Alabama. So (laughs) there you go. You should expect some odd things, unfortunately. An 8-1 majority of the Alabama Supreme Court found that embryos are unborn 
children. That is correct. An embryo, like a fetus, is a unborn child and therefore protected under Alabama state law. Okay, before we get into the specifics of the case, let me tell you why this case came to the Alabama Supreme Court at all, because you're probably wondering. (laughs) You should be. So, three families who were struggling to conceive on their own decided to use in vitro fertilization, in vitro meaning inside of the test tube as opposed to in uterine, which would be inside of the uterus. So they decided to conceive via the test tube, right? The eggs and the sperm coming together to create an embryo. And those embryos were then stored in a facility in Alabama, in a hospital. Unfortunately, there was someone, and we don't have the details of the case, who was wandering around inside of the hospital, and made his way into the room where the embryos were kept. Now, they're kept at sub-zero temperatures because that's the only way to preserve them. And he picked up one of the containers, I guess, containing multiple embryos and immediately was frostbitten by it and dropped it, destroying the embryos. Now, these families were quite reasonably distraught. If you know anything about in vitro fertilization, the harvesting of eggs, there are only so many, there are only so many good ones. The fertilization process doesn't always take. And so these really, really are cherished belongings for the families that hand them over to hospitals and providers. So they were dropped. They were destroyed. This was a terrible moment for these families and they wanted to sue. They wanted to be compensated. And so they sue using the 1872 wrongful death law, which refers to the murder or death, I should say, of minor children. It's basically what the act says. Now, to make a long story short, I've now read the opinion for you, so you don't have to go back and read it in detail. But actually, the majority opinion is kind of short. It's only about 20 pages. The court basically says, look, we've already decided that fetuses are children, unborn children for the purposes of this law. So the only thing we're really trying to decide is whether it matters that it was in vitro as, a fo- as opposed to in utero. And they decide it doesn't matter <laughs> that it's in vitro. It doesn't matter that it's in a test tube, right? Now, I want you to know that though it came out 8-1, there was actually a good bit of disagreement among the justices, all of whom are Republicans, There was one dissent, but there were concurrences that basically said, this is tricky territory. We don't really know what we're doing. It's a little complicated. It's not what the majority opinion says, which calls it the black letter law, which means it's just as clear as day. It's not that. So there was at least some disagreement. And yet they did arrive at the fundamental proposition that embryos are, for the purposes of this law, the same as fetuses and the same as children. This, of course, has set the entire world on fire as it pertains to the United States. Because all over the country, people are now wondering, is this the conflagration? Is this the thing that's going to spark a number of such rulings across conservative courts all around? Now, Republican politicians have already run for the hills. Nikki Haley has said, I support IVF. Donald Trump has said, I support IVF. Several other active governors have said they support IVF. Even the senators in the state of Alabama, Republican senators in the state of Alabama have said, we support IVF and the court has gone too far. It's made the wrong decision. So how did we get here? Because 
what the court says is that it's relying on Alabama's constitution to reach this end. (laughs) So how did the Alabama Supreme Court end up being so far out of step with all of the political realities around them, all of the majoritarian interests around them? And there's really only one answer to that to be found in the concurrent concurrence of Chief Justice Tom Parker. It's that in the state of Alabama, religion and politics and law are all profoundly overlapping. (laughs) That's an understatement. I mean, they're basically laying on top of each other. And this is a huge constitutional problem. I think one that we really didn't even fully diagnose in last week's coverage of this opinion. The closest we got was an opinion piece written by Ellie Mistal of The Nation, where he points out that Chief Justice Tom Parker uses the word God in his concurrence 41 times. He also liberally quotes from the Bible, specifically from the book of Genesis, and from theologians like Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin. This is unusual. You got to read that opinion too. That I would say set aside just a few minutes of your day. Because when you go through it, I've never seen anything like it, really. I mean, I've read probably thousands of judicial opinions, more than the average American, not as much as my senior legal colleagues, but enough, enough to have a fair appreciation for the kinds of arguments that are made in law. And this was utterly bizarre, utterly bizarre. Now, it's totally in keeping with Tom Parker's approach to law. He was quoted as saying in 2014, when judges don't rule in the fear of the Lord, everything's falling apart. The whole world's coming unglued, he said. (laughs) In 2005, earlier than that, he said the very God of the Holy Scriptures, the creator, is the source of law, life, and liberty. God created government, and Christians should take it back from the possession of others. This is the Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court. And this is scary stuff. I mean, we really shouldn't underestimate it. As Ellie points out, this is theocratic talk. This is the establishment of religion, a violation of the First Amendment. And as far as I can tell, though, many of the commentators have said this case has no reason to go before the United States Supreme Court. It seems to me that if the interpretation of the wrongful death law at issue in this case was seriously influenced by religious underpinnings, such that we might think that there's too much of an entanglement, that's the term used by the Supreme Court, between law and politics, excuse me, between religion and politics, let's do that again, that we think there's too much of an entanglement between religion and politics, religion and law, that the Supreme Court ought to review this case. Now, let me take one step back because I actually know what some of our listeners must be thinking. It cannot be the case that you cannot reference religion in your understanding of politics, public morality. If politics is about morals and you draw your moral understanding from faith, 
that to exclude any arguments that rely on your understanding of what God demands for your life, for your community, for the country, for you not to be able to articulate those things means that you would be excluded from our society. And that just can't be the right interpretation of the First Amendment. Let me double down on this argument for people who are persuaded by that, that if in fact faith motivates their moral standing, their moral understanding, that they should be able to appeal to that in politics and in law. If you believe that, you're actually well supported by a number of progressives, progressive forces at least. It's certainly the case that our Declaration of Independence refers to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as endowed by our Creator. It's certainly the case that Martin Luther King talked in Christian terms often to motivate the country to do right. This Christian nation ought to act differently on questions of race, ought to tear down the walls of segregation so that all of God's children could eat at the table of brotherhood. Abraham Lincoln, in perhaps his most important address, the second inaugural, says, and this is one of my favorite quotes from until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn by the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, it must be said today that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. My favorite line from Barack Obama's inaugural was from the Bible, the time for childish things is now past. So it's obvious that religion plays a role in our national life, that faith plays a role in our national life, not just because so many people subscribe to a faith, but because in our discussions about the right and wrong thing to do, we often draw on scriptures of a variety of kinds. Now, that's the best argument for what Judge Parker is up to. He is drawing on the deep and rich traditions of Christianity to support his legal proposition. Well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> you know I'm going somewhere with this, right? What's wrong with that? How could that be wrong? Well, it's ultimately wrong for two reasons. It's not wrong. The reference itself isn't wrong. Because religion can be an instigation to thought. Each of the references I provided, the Declaration of Independence, Martin Luther King, Abraham Lincoln, Barack Obama, are invitations to thought. Their origins might be religions, but they invite rational reflection. The problem when using religious argument is if it runs aground of the because God said so rule. Once you reach that point where the argument summarizes itself somehow as because God said so, well, then it becomes the establishment of religion because the only thing I can do as a non-believer, if that's the case, or someone of a different faith tradition or someone of the same faith tradition who just doesn't believe that my religion ought to influence politics, is look at you. <laughs> we actually can no longer debate the merits of this argument. And yet, that's what Tom Parker and so many people like him are attempting to do. That is the establishment of religion that the founders feared. Most people forget that the founders had come from generations of people who had existed in Europe 
during the wars of religion when people were killing each other because each side said, because God said so. And that was their only appeal. So the founders made a calculated judgment informed by history that we could not have the establishment of religion, which today we refer to as the entanglement between the state and religion, though we could have free exercise of religion. Everyone was allowed to believe what they wanted to believe, to have freedom of conscience. That couldn't be imposed upon by government. But government could not adopt someone's private religious faith as orthodoxy and the reason for the things that we do. So it seems to me that this case has got to go before the Supreme Court because Judge Parker, in laying out in detail how it is that the Alabama legislature came to believe that life begins at conception relies entirely upon religious doctrine because God said so. That's a scary place to be. It's a place we could have predicted we were going once Roe v. Wade was knocked down, once the conservative majority in the Dobbs case said that Roe v. Wade, after more than four decades of being the law of the land, was no longer the law of the land, on what then seemed to be suspicious theocratic kinds of reasonings. They relied on a guy named Sir Matthew Hale, (laughs) another troublesome figure. You should look him up. Burned witches at the stake, for real, for real, for real. But this is where that decision has led us. It's led us to the states by abolishing a national protection for bodily autonomy. It's led us to the states. And now we are beginning to see what the underpinnings of these arguments for invading bodily autonomy actually are. They're theocratic, they're religiously based, they're because God said so. And that's not the country our founders promised us, or a country that I want to live in. I'm sure it's the same for you. Justice Clarence Thomas is back in the news again, this time for hiring a law clerk who is accused of racism. I really wish Justice Thomas would stay out of the spotlight. In fact, he probably wishes that, too. I don't know if you all were paying attention, but John Oliver's opening episode of the new season of last week tonight was about Supreme Court ethics. And you've got to go see it. It's hilarious for a number of reasons. I'll just give you one line from it. Justice Thomas has accepted dozens upon dozens of lavish gifts, including yacht trips and tuition for his nephew, the purchase of his mother's home while she's still living in it, a loan that he didn't have to pay back for a mega coach, which is like decked out and looks like a condo on wheels is how it's described. He's accepted all these things. And his explanation as to why he did not report them to the public was that he believed that they were acts of personal hospitality. And John Oliver, as I said, has a great line about this, which is dinner at someone's home is an act of personal hospitality, not a nine-day Indonesian cruise, (laughs) yacht trip, whatever it was. Um, And the basic rule becomes, if this could be a prize on the prices right, it's not personal hospitality. And Justice Thomas has been winning the prices right for now over three decades on the court. So why is he back in the news now? Well, he has hired a law clerk by the name of Crystal Clanton. She'll begin to clerk for him 
in the upcoming term. She just graduated from the Antonin Scalia School of Law at George Mason University. So this is already headed in the wrong direction. Here's what you need to know about Ms. Clanton. Uh, in late 2017, a New Yorker story reported that while she was serving as a national field director for Turning Point USA, a conservative student group, she sent a text message, including the statement, I hate black people, to another employee. I hate black people. Now, at the time when she was confronted with the revelation about this text message, which the New York Times has not seen and has not been independently verified, that is, no one has seen the actual evidence, but when she was confronted about it, she said, the messages do not reflect what I believe or who I am, and the same was true when I was a teenager. Hmm. Okay. So, did you send it or didn't you send this text message? That becomes the mystery. It seems when you hear that statement that she did send the text message. I sent the message but that doesn't reflect who I am or what I believe. Now, she says she had no recollection of the message, but if I did send it, (laughs) if I did say I hate black people, that wasn't really what I meant. It's not who I am. Now, anyone who hadn't sent the message, if you would come to me and said, Rakeem, there's something out there that says that you hate black people, I would say that's ludicrous. That makes no sense. Choose whoever, whatever your group is. There's no group with which I would say I hate the whole group. So you can have your pick. <laughs> you hate conservatives. I wouldn't even say that. I would say that would come off my tongue. I don't hate whole groups of people. I hate ideologies. There are people who are hateable, who are hateful, I should say, and maybe deserving of my hate and contempt, but I'm not quite wired that way. So, in fact, in my household growing up, you couldn't say hate. It's a very complicated story. I'll tell it to you another time. But one of the things I would often get popped in the mouth for was saying hate. So I've learned not to say it. In fact, I react almost like Pavlov's dog to the word hate. I'm like, oh, no, that's a vicious thing. It's like a curse. In any case, so um, it doesn't reflect what I believe or who I am. All right. So what happened in the interim from the time that she resigned after that text message until now, 2017, seven years later? In that time, she was hired by the chief judge of the 11th circuit William Pryor who said he did his own investigation and did not believe this to be true and then it turned out that there's now been a story concocted that in fact there was someone who infiltrated the employees email and text messaging systems and sent these provocative inflammatory racist messages I hope you're scratching your head the way that I'm scratching mine. Because if I didn't send the text message, when confronted with it, I wouldn't say I have no recollection of that message. I would say there's no way (laughs) I sent that message. There's just no way. This is entirely unbelievable, actually. It is entirely unbelievable that her response at the time somehow comports with the fact that her email and text message accounts were hacked. To point out more broadly, there's no larger scheme that has been revealed. She's the only person who seems to have been a victim of this scheme. So I don't believe it. But in any case, she went on to clerk for Justice Will Pryor, and now she's going to clerk for Justice Thomas. 
Now, how did she manage to become so close to the Thomases? Well, she worked for Jenny Thomas. For those of you who don't know, that's the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. Jenny Thomas is a well-known conservative activist, and I would actually say a MAGA activist. I think that would be a fair characterization, given that she was actively involved in the Stop the Steal, that is the January 6th insurrection. Uh, she was routinely texting Mark Meadows, then chief of staff, and telling him to stand beside this president and not allow this travesty to take place. So she worked. That is, Miss Clanton worked for Jenny Thomas and developed a close relationship with the Thomases. I believe she may have even lived with them for a period of time. Justice Thomas is the one who helped support her in getting her federal clerkship. He wrote a letter of support, said he would consider her for a Supreme Court clerkship, and now... All come full circle. She will now be clerking on the Supreme Court of the United States. A body that is supposed to be impartial. That's supposed to rule without fear or favor. Where the justice is supposed to avoid any semblance of impropriety. Anything that might reasonably cause a party in a case or the public to suspect that the justices were not ruling fairly and impartially is to be avoided. And yet, we now have a law clerk who has a history of saying, I hate black people, who, yes, says that it does not comport with who she was at that time or what she believes now, but who reasonably cannot be believed to even be contrite if she did say it, which she likely did. Because she hasn't owned up to it. And in fact has been enveloped. By a series of conservative mentors who have defended her. Says she has no obligation to apologize for this thing because it never happened. We are living in sad times with regard to our judiciary. As I was making the point earlier. This is not the first time Justice Thomas has, has given us. The middle finger, we the public, with regard to our claims about the need for judicial integrity. His yacht trips, undisclosed. The purchase of his mother's home, undisclosed. The tuition, undisclosed. The loan that he's not paid back for this coach condo, undisclosed. We as the public had to dig for all of this. Thank God for ProPublica. See, there I go, referencing God, (laughs) drawing it into public conversation. See, it can be done. But that's not the end of my reasoning. It's not because God said so. (laughs) Justice Thomas shouldn't resign because God said so. Miss Clinton shouldn't be hired because God said so. No, they shouldn't be hired because she shouldn't be hired. And Justice Thomas should resign because the facts demonstrate that their very presence on the Supreme Court causes the public to trust it less. Going back some time, I used to say Justice Thomas can be as conservative as he wants to be. In fact, I used to defend Justice Thomas to an extent, which is I hated, 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 hated when it was suggested that he was unintelligent. Oh, you just don't know how much this flew around. He was unintelligent. (laughs) And, you know, he was just a puppet. I hated that. I thought he's evil, maybe, but like, let him be evil on his own, (laughs) right? He's reached these wrong conclusions from my perspective on his own, but he's entitled to them. 
He's doing grievous harm to the country, but he's doing it on his own. <laughs> so that's not the problem. I mean, his jurisprudence is a huge problem, but let's just put that aside for a second. That's not the problem. It's that you used to believe there was some integrity to those beliefs. And now you look around and you realize he feels as though he owes us absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. When the public says, hey, wait a minute, I really don't think that you should be going on these luxury paid trips with four billionaires. You got to watch the whole John Oliver special if you're missing the detail. But with four billionaires, all of whom have tried to influence the course of American law through their donations. That you should just sort of be hanging out with them. Taking pictures, looking cozy because you don't hang out with the other people who are opposed to their positions, maybe if you were doing it for both sides, we might find it somehow equitable. <laughs> if you hung out with conservative billionaires and liberal billionaires, ta-da. But no, that's not Justice Thomas. Justice Thomas thinks that what he does is beyond public scrutiny. And so far, he's been proven right. Because for over a year, while these... Luxury vacations have been documented and brought to light. He's still on the court. He's still capable of hiring someone like Miss Clanton. And my question is just, when are we going to wake up? This doesn't have to be partisan, actually. If a progressive were doing the exact same things that Justice Thomas were doing, I would say they should resign from the court. We don't want this of our justices. And in fact, we don't allow it for any other judge in the federal system. If you don't know this, you heard me right. <laughs> there is a binding code of ethics for every other federal judge in the system. Except the Supreme Court justices. It's so bad that at the end of John Oliver's special, he offers Clarence Thomas $1 million dollars every year until his death if he will resign from the Supreme Court. That's right, $1 million every year until his death if he will resign from the Supreme Court and a luxury coach worth over $2 million. And John Oliver says he checked with his lawyers and this is legal. <laughs> this is legal. Justice Thomas allegedly has 30 days to accept that offer and it was made on February 18th so time is winding down I doubt he accepts it but for the good of the country I wish he would <laughs>